Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 50 of the show. We made it. We made it to 50. Figured I would celebrate episode 50 in a couple of different ways. First off, hope y'all liked the new intro. Uh, Once again, have my wonderful, talented brother, Mika, to thank for the music. He sent me a folder of unused clips of music, uh like two years ago before I was starting this podcast. And I have since using three of these unfinished pieces of music in my first intro for this show, the new one, and in my intro to Horror Rapport, the other podcast I host. Um, It was funny, I don't think he actually remembered he sent me that folder because I sent him the intro that I recorded and he was like, holy shit, uh, forgot about that music, forgot that I sent it to you, and thanks for using it, because it sounds awesome. Um, so yeah, I'm glad to give the podcast a little bit of a makeover, uh, or not a makeover, just like a slight upgrade. Uh, it's nice to bring something fresh to the show. It's, uh, always interesting to me how The things that I put out there, whether they're like the podcast or my website or anything, are such reflections of who I am uh, at the time. And maybe I don't notice how much I'm changing or how my tastes change, um, but I can sort of see how I've changed through these things that feel sort of outdated, like the intro to my podcast um, or like a website, for example, or like promo photos of myself. I had a friend take amazing photos of me. Uh, again, I think it was like a couple of years ago and they were amazing and felt totally aligned and authentic at the time. And now I'm like great photos, but not me anymore. Um, so it's interesting to sort of see the ways we change reflected back at us through these mirrors. Um, I think especially when you have some sort of creative output, whether it's any sort of writing or podcasting or photography or poetry or anything like that. Uh, Anyway, um, I would say I didn't think I'd make it to episode 50, but to be honest, I was pretty sure I'd make it to episode 50. Uh, When I started the show, as I mentioned before, I didn't have a lot of expectation I had a lot of excess energy and excess opinions that I'd sort of kept under wraps for way too long and realized that it was a waste of my time and my energy to take that stuff out like via Facebook rant or at my friends and family who'd 
heard me talk about the same things over and over again. So this podcast was sort of just like a, a place to put my thoughts and opinions. And I knew that even if nobody decided to listen, that at least I would feel a sense of relief and calm after, uh, you know, engaging in some sort of weird, like personal therapy session. Cause really that's all therapy is right. Like a space to hear yourself talk. This is just my therapy. And I happen to bring people in to help give me some therapy. Um, but anyway, there are a bunch of you listening to this. So that's amazing. Um, even though I didn't have any expectation when I started the podcast, I did really hope that, you know, at the time I didn't have a tribe of my own, honestly, I had gone through such a transformative uh, period of my life that the people around me and the things that I was doing no longer really reflected who I was. Uh, as I sort of was expressing at the beginning of this episode. So um, I needed friends and I didn't really know where to find people. It's not like you can walk into a bar and be like, oh, you look like a cool person who's aligned with all of my opinions. So I was like, well, I could just start a podcast and they could come to me. That would be cool. Um, and it worked. You guys did come to me. And uh, a bunch of you have actually become real life friends. And that's fucking amazing. And I absolutely feel now that I'm a part of a really cool group of people. And that I also know this is only the sort of very, very beginning. Like we have maybe taken the first few steps onto the trail. There hasn't even been any elevation yet. We have not climbed at all. Um, but that was the other thing, you know, in starting this podcast was like, I felt like my future had a lot to do with um, creating some sort of community where people could come and feel like they belonged and they could use their gifts in ways that others appreciated and which um, worked alongside other people who had different gifts and we could all just work together and have this sort of chosen family. So I, that whole sort of project, which is still very, I would say, energetic in nature, although I did buy land. So there's that. Um, that whole thing is still in the works, but it's really nice to see that whatever my intentions were in starting this podcast initially have definitely moved forward. And because I started with pretty low expectations and, um, yeah, I just wanted to wait and see what happened. Even any like little progress that's made feels amazing because although I have maybe again, an energetic goal in mind, there's no timetable. I'm not super attached to what it ends up looking like. I just know that this is a piece of that puzzle and, uh, that continues to feel really good. So here's to 50 more episodes. Uh, the other way that we are celebrating episode 50 today is uh, that Chris Ryan's on the podcast, definitely one of the most requested guests, definitely long overdue, um, but uh, definitely glad I trusted our timing on this one because uh, Chris just recently wrote a book called Civilized to Death, and um, it's all about how we sort of got to where we are not now. Um, with all the problems that we're seeing uh, be exposed through this pandemic in terms of whether or not, you know, civilization and progress have actually been beneficial. So 
felt like the perfect time mid-quarantine to have this discussion, so glad I waited. Uh, Chris was also a big inspiration for me starting this podcast. I uh, had this sort of running joke with my friends at the time about how this was before I met Chris, but I had I had read his book several years, uh, Sex at Dawn, several years before, and had just started listening to his podcast and was like, I feel like I'm the female version of Chris Ryan, which turns out to be a lot more true than I uh, even thought it was. Um, and it was so intense at first that when I decided I wanted to start a podcast, I was listening, I had just started listening to podcasts in general, and it was his and a few others, but I so resonated with um, Chris's opinions and his worldview that I actually had to stop listening to his podcast because I was afraid that I would just come up with this like very similar uh, identical show, but hosted by me instead. Uh, so yeah, I, I actually stopped listening to it for maybe like, I don't know how long it was, eight months to a year while I got this podcast up and running. Um, and, uh, I think that fear was probably a little unwarranted, but I also am sort of glad that I challenged myself to really make this project my own and, you know, figure out how I wanted to structure it and, um, how I wanted to be able to ask people to support it and, you know, where I played music or what kind of intro I had. And, uh, it's been really interesting. Uh, I think there are probably a lot of people that listen to this show that listen to his show and, um, so you may have heard we have often interviewed the same guests, uh, sometimes back to back, and it's been a really sort of fun and fascinating experience to see, although we are very aligned and share a lot of opinions, that the conversations go in sort of two different directions, but yet are still uh, still run parallel and uh, complement each other in many ways. So um, that's been really cool. And uh yeah, figured it was about time for us to have a conversation ourselves. So hope you enjoy that. Um, just recorded another episode this morning with Charles Eisenstein, which was really amazing, which I will bring you next week. I'm really excited about that one. Um, it's funny, I actually recorded the intro, this part of the show, yesterday, and <laughs> felt like I was stumbling all over my words, and I was in a really grumpy mood, and... I was just really frustrated and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to scrap this and go back to it tomorrow and record it tomorrow. I wanted to release this episode on Thursday, but fuck it. Um, I want to sound relatively coherent and um, I didn't really know why I was grumpy or frustrated, probably many reasons, but I think one of them was just feeling uh, just, yeah, frustrated with what's going on right now in regard to, like, loosening the restrictions of social distancing, which isn't to say that I think social distancing is, like, the thing that's going to save us. I can't even necessarily say that it has saved us so far or has helped. I mean, there's so many unknowns in this. Um, I'm fully in support of it because it seems like the most responsible thing to do right now. It seems reasonable for the period of time that we've done it. So I'm not frustrated necessarily that they're loosening the restrictions or thinking about loosening them or talking about loosening them uh, because I think it's going to lead to the spread of the virus, although it may. But more just because I feel so much like this experience is preamble, like it is one of many events uh, that's going to occur that will um, 
sort of just show us what's been there all along, but which we found it a lot easier to ignore before. Um, when we had our schedules and our routines and the economy was working fine and, um, you know, we were just, uh, sort of robotic in our existence. And, you know, I don't, I guess I have faith that regardless of what happens with these restrictions, that the mask is going to be pulled off anyway. Um, but I can't deny that there is some fear or concern on my part that like, this isn't going to do it or nothing's going to do it. Like, what is it going to take for us to realize that normalcy quote unquote is nothing that we want to return to? Um, my conversation with Charles this morning, I think really helped me understand that frustration that I've been feeling a little bit more. And, uh, he's so sort of intelligent and eloquent that he explained it, uh, sort of resonated with what I was saying and explained it in a way that, you know, made a lot more sense. Um, not to mention like Trump telling people to inject themselves with, uh, disinfectant. I know that's not exactly what he said, but, um, that was equal parts horrifying and hilarious at the same time. Um, just things are so insane and like how, it's such a good metaphor, I feel like. I mean, yes, there's a lot of us that are like, wow, how ridiculous this man is saying, like, maybe we can somehow inject UV light or disinfectant into the body and that will kill the virus without killing the human. Um, I know a lot of us think that's absolutely ridiculous, but like not ridiculous enough to do anything about, I guess. Uh, there's a numbness of you know, just how absurd the world is. And I feel like that numbness has existed for a long time in many other ways, right? Like we're not just numb to Trump. Trump is just a symptom of a much larger problem that we've been sort of numb to or ignoring for a really long time. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying I'm innocent here. I absolutely probably participate in and perpetuate, you know, systems that aren't that great. Um, but Regardless, it's frustrating, and I, I don't really know where the breaking point is, and I feel very caught between feeling fear and sadness for those who are way more at risk than I am, but also feeling like I want this to be prolonged so that we learn the lessons we need to learn, and wow, if this is not just a very uncertain time, uh, Chris and I talk a lot about uncertainty and I think both of us feel as if we're the types of people that sort of thrive, uh, in uncertainty. I know I've talked about before. I actually think I talked about a lot, uh, this a lot with my dad in the episode I did with him, um, which I think back on a lot actually was still one of the favorite, one of my favorite episodes that I've done. Um, I want to tell you what number it was, but I don't know off the top of my head, maybe 21. That's a guess. It's called the Rod and Anya show. Um, but I definitely think thanks to him, I was just raised in a way where I, I sort of could see that everything was constantly shifting and that certainty about anything was impossible. And so any level of certainty that I experience in the world or from anyone or from myself now is actually um, really unnerving. And uh, I feel more comfortable when things are undefined and more nuanced and paradoxical uh, because, yeah, certainty freaks me out. Um, but even still, even being one of those people, 
who thrives in that environment. The level of certainty and the lack of control that's going on right now, even for me, feels extreme. So I can only imagine what that feels like for other people and, you know, the desire to find control and hold on to control in any other way that they possibly can. And um, there's definitely, I think, a panic going on because the rug has been pulled out from under us and uh, we realize maybe we didn't really have control at all. Uh, And yeah, I don't know what's more concerning, you know, realizing you don't have control now or realizing that your whole life was a lie. Uh, I do think that's a lot of what's going on now, sort of recognizing that we uh, live in cages with the door wide open and, you know, the grief of recognizing our own participation uh, in our own suffering, as per my new intro, um, is a lot more intense to absorb and to digest than if we are just to blame something outside of us for um, that stuckness or that unhappiness. Anyway, I feel like I'm just summarizing both my conversation with Chris and Charles. So I'm going to stop because I want you to hear the act, the real conversation and not be bored. Um, if you want to support the show, uh, please head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. You may have realized that another way I'm celebrating the 50th episode of the show is that I'm going to start, start officially, all of the time, if I can help it, pronouncing my name correctly. Um, I grew up, all of us uh, pronounced my last name Kates. It's K-A-A-T-S. So clearly Kates makes no sense. Any other pronunciation would make more sense. Um, It's Dutch. And so technically it is Kots. But um, when my family came here from the Netherlands, America was like, it's going to be Kates. And uh, it's funny because my family have all sort of dealt with this strange predicament. Um, My dad works in theater. My brother, as I mentioned, uh, made music, makes music. I don't know. Both of them changed their name to have it be spelled K-A-T-E-S, like phonetically, so that people would pronounce it properly. Then I moved to the Netherlands and people just called me Anya Kotz all the time and I didn't correct them because they were right. And uh, my brother lives in Amsterdam now. And it was very funny because at the time when he moved there many years ago, uh, he was making music more regularly and he decided to make his musical name just his whole name spelled phonetically, M-E-E-K-A-K-A-T-E-S, which if you want to hear his music, which is amazing, and I've played uh, multiple times on the podcast, full songs, not just clips on the intros, uh, you can find it all on Spotify. But anyway, he changed his name to that pronunciation and then a Dutch band called Krakenschmack both words with two double A's, invited him to come to the Netherlands and tour with them and record an album. And it was just a very ironic situation and um, very inconvenient timing given that he just decided to like spell his name and yet he was going to the place where, the one place where his name would have been pronounced properly. Um, So anyway, I've decided to take the inverse approach of keeping my name spelled the way that it is, but saying Kotz. And, uh, have to thank Chris, honestly, for part of that. He, when he met me, he saw my last name and started calling me Anya Kotz and I never corrected him. And then maybe like a month or so later, he, uh, listened to my podcast and heard my intro and was like, so why haven't you told me that I'm mispronouncing your name and that I've been doing that for like the past four weeks? 
And I was like, well, it's sort of complicated because I'm technically mispronouncing your name. You're right. Um, it definitely still sounds very weird for me to say Anya Kotz. It sounds kind of pretentious, but when I hear it, it sounds totally normal. So I'm just going to keep saying it uh, and hopefully it feels less weird. And I'm sure that entire story was not super interesting for you. So I apologize, but figured I'd provide an explanation for why it seems I don't know how to pronounce my last name. So back to what I was saying, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Uh, I know times are really tough right now. If you have a few extra dollars to spare, I would really appreciate the support. This podcast is my sole source of income at the moment. Um, and, uh, I'd like to keep it that way, at least as of now, getting sponsors on the podcast and making money that way does not feel good to me too many years as a food blogger writing sponsored posts about natural products brands no offense to them they're great but the whole like selling products to you to make money thing just yeah doesn't feel aligned for me so I'd much prefer to have this be supported by people like you um so for just a few bucks a month if you head over to patreon uh, you not only help to support me and this show um, but you also get access to some perks. Uh, the one I'm most excited about is that I just launched uh, sort of an exclusive WhatsApp group chat um, for those who donate 10 bucks um, or more per month. I think there's about 13 of us in the group now. I think I'm probably going to cap it at 20. Uh, so not very many spots left, but it's been really nice to connect directly um, with some of you, especially during this time. Feels like sort of imperative that we do so. So if you want to be a part of that group, we would love to have you um, sort of just talking amongst ourselves um, about episodes I've been sending, articles I've been reading. Um, and yeah, there's also other levels. You can donate five bucks a month, which is like a coffee. And if you think about it, how many Starbucks coffees are you not buying now? Um, so if you'd like to donate one of those saved cups of coffee to me. Greatly appreciate it. Um, and at that level, I send out custom playlists and um, lots of other stuff. There's t-shirts as well. So patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Um, if you don't have any money, I totally understand. Just listening to the show helps a lot and makes me feel really good that there are people out there so that I am not just talking into a black hole, although I probably would, even if that were the case. Um, but if you don't have any money and would still like to support the show, one thing that's really helpful is if you go to iTunes and hit subscribe and leave some stars and a review. Uh, one thing that I would really, really like to do is get more sort of high profile guests on the show. And one of the major ways that um, people who have uh, a lot going on and who are a lot busier, uh, what they do to decide if they want to be on the show or not, is they look to see how many people have um, reviewed it or left stars. So the more of you that do, um, the more it seems worth their while. And uh, the amount of you that listen compared to the amount of you that have left stars or review, it's a very, very big disconnect. So it's not even like lying whatsoever. Um, it would just be more reflective of the audience that actually exists. And then I could sort of prove it on an app. Um, anyway, that would be really helpful, and uh, it also helps the podcast show up more in search results. Uh, so again, my biggest mission here is to reach more people. 
So any way you think to help with that is great. Uh, if you ever have any suggestions for guests, feel free to email me. I actually have a fucking finished website now. It's one really, really nice benefit of having all this downtime. I finished my website, which um, I basically avoided for a year and a half. So <laughs> anyakotz.com. Um, you can listen to all of the podcasts on there. You can send me an email through there, sign up for my email newsletter. And uh, yeah. I think that's all I have to say. Um, thank you all so much, especially those of you that have been here from the beginning. Thank you for sticking around for 50 episodes. I'm really excited to bring you 50 more and 50 after that. Uh, it was interesting putting my website together and sort of reflecting on how many amazing conversations I've had. Sometimes I forget um, how many cool people have been on this show, but I feel very grateful to have had them on. Uh, if you're new to listening, always scroll back and see if there's anything that interests you. Those conversations are all still very um, meaningful and applicable to our time. So I am going to play you in with a song by Tanarowin. I am very surprised I have not played a song by them on the podcast yet. Really like them. Uh, band from the Sahara in like Northern Mali, I believe. Um, their music is fucking amazing to dance to. I'm taking a belly dance class right now and, uh, definitely play this music a lot to practice. Uh, the song I'm going to play is Tal Yat, um, but I definitely recommend checking them out. Uh, T-I-N-A-R-I-W-E-N and, um, enjoy the episode and I will catch you on the other side.
set up <laughs> except I don't have headphones on so I can't hear my deep manly voice the way I you normally do it's a tragedy <laughs> it is I you know everybody has those you know anybody who, who does a podcast or radio or anything you have these moments where you say oh my god do I really sound like that that's horrible wow my voice is so weird uh I, I might be one of the only people who ever's like, oh, damn, my voice sounds pretty good. I like that. Yeah, I actually feel the same. You like your voice or you like or my voice? Both. <laughs> <laughs> but no, mine. I mean, I, I don't know if I could say, like, I really like my voice, but I never had an issue with it, which I was afraid of because everyone, when they have, a you know, like a radio show or a podcast, are like, fuck, I don't want to hear myself. And I was like, eh, yeah. it's not that bad. <laughs> it's, all, it's like a body dimorphism kind of thing. Is that the word? Is that what I'm talking dysmorphia. about? Dysmorphia. Yeah. yeah, dimorphism is an evolutionary term. Uh, dysmorphia. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's something that, it's strange how we see ourselves and our first reaction is often disgust. It's such a strange thing. You know, I wonder if that's a cultural issue. If if um, other cultures don't have that initial reaction. I mean, for example, I, I had great experience. Um, I was traveling in Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam in 2003, I think it was. And um, I had a digital camera. And I don't know where that was in the, you know, development of digital cameras, but, you know, had a LCD screen on the back of it. Uh, it was before smartphones were real cameras, you know. And uh, I was back in some very remote villages and I would take pictures of kids and then 
call them over and say, look, that's you. And I could, uh, you could see a lot of these kids had never seen themselves before. Mm. And it would, they would just go nuts, you know, and they would like call all their friends and there'd be like 20, 30 little kids like, oh my God, take a picture of me, take a picture of me. And it was so great. I, I had done that with a Polaroid in the 90s or maybe it was even the late 80s I took a Polaroid. But, you know, you have maybe 40 shots or something, you know, in these cartridges. Um, but with the digital camera, it was free. So I could just do and then do videos of them and they dance around. And there was no disgust there. But do you think there's disgust with kids at all? Hmm, good, good question. If there isn't, then that I would say, you know, gives weight to the cultural right. argument. Yeah. I read somewhere that actually disgust is the last of the, um, I don't know if we could call it an emotion, um, but it's a, it's a response that develops later in life. I, I don't know if this is true and I don't remember where I read this, but I do remember reading that babies have no disgust reaction to anything, including shit and, you know, like rotted food or anything. They're just uh, equally sort of interested in it, but that they don't have that, oh, that's disgusting kind of like retraction response, which does suggest that it's learned. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, even with, you know, when a baby cries, like often it'll get hit on the head and nothing happens, but then it looks at the adult who starts to freak out and then the baby starts crying. Like right. it's the reaction is reactive. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I mean, that's sort of, I mean, not to get heavy here, but I mean, you know, people have asked me like, what's the connective tissue in the research and the work and my curiosity, whatever I've done in my life. And I, if I had to boil it down, what I've always said is that I'm interested in distinguishing what is human from what is cultural, you know, trying to untangle that. Um, and it's so much harder than it seems, you know, and, and that's why actually the beginning of Sex at Dawn is all about disgust, right, and about food and how some cultures find you know, eating grubs to be a sign of starvation, whereas other cultures are like, what are you talking about? They taste great. You know, they're nutritious. They're easy to get. Of course, we're eating grubs, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, disgust. It's a, it's a, the golden road to dis distinguishing the cultural from the universally human. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually going to be something I was going to ask you about. I mean, one, I, I also remember in college learning the term social construction and feeling like so relieved to finally have a way to define that because I feel like I'd been thinking about it before, but didn't really know how to like conceptualize it. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say, because I feel like this is a question you get all the time and that I think about all the time, not only trying to distinguish between sort of like innate and culturally constructed, but then also like, once, let's say, you come to a conclusion about that, whether it's about civilization or monogamy or, like, even if you understand it, how to actually embody it and unpack what's undeniably, like, generations upon generations of cultural imprinting. So, like, how does one actually embody something that's innate when they've been conditioned over so long yeah, that's that's a really important question, and and it's something I try to keep in mind when people 
um, you know, when I give a public presentation about sex at dawn, I, I try to remember to um, show some respect to people who may understand the principles that we outlined in the book and agree with them from an intellectual perspective, but find them impossible to incorporate into their own personal lives because they feel um, jealousy uh, is probably the most common problem. Um, that they're just, they, they just feel too much jealousy. It's like, I get it, I understand it, but there's no way that I could ever um, not be hurt by my partner uh, having sex with someone else. I get it. And and I get it in, in the sense that there is no way that I could sit down to a dinner of sheep's brain without being disgusted or... Um, you know, uh, what's it called? Guts, you know, that the, the intestines, you know, that big in Mexican food, you know, um, you know, or, or lots of things that Japanese people eat. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? I don't even like sushi. So I'm pretty rigid, um, as far as food stuff goes. I mean, I think you and I've spoken before about, (laughs) I remember asking you like how, if you could pick one way that you would be cooler, what would it be? And you're like, I don't know. I think I'm pretty cool. But, <laughs> but my the reason I asked that was for me, like, I really wish I were cooler about food. Yeah. I wish I were like, you know, Anthony Bourdain, like, sure, I'll, I'll eat that, whatever, you know. You know, wild boar asshole, sure, hand it over. Uh, but I'm not. So I get it. And I don't, I don't know, you know, generations. I don't know that that it's something that's solidified through DNA. I think it's probably, you know, just early imprinting. Um, but yeah, it can be very difficult. I do think there are some things that I've overcome. There are some, you know, um, a lot of things that I've learned and sort of thought my way out of the maze. Um, you know, things around, you know, whatever. Uh, worship of money and ambition and, uh, you know, uh, the, the meaning of sports and victory and being American. And, you know, there are all sorts of things that I've, I feel like I've managed to find my way out of, but food preferences is a tough one. Another one is, um, women with hairy armpits, <laughs> you know, like I totally get it. If I were a woman, I'd be like, fuck it. I don't want to shave my armpits. That's bullshit, you know? Uh, but it's like a super hot woman with hairy armpits. I'm just like, eh, yeah. sorry, just can't go there. <laughs> to be fair, I did amend my answer to say, I wish I was cooler about like extreme sports, like, uh, What's that thing where you like jump off the mountain and you're flying? The wingsuit? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I definitely don't want to do oh, that. Paragliding? Paragliding even. Oh, yeah. Like stuff like that. Like any sort of like high risk, even though you say it's not that high risk. Like I just don't like the anxiety, but maybe I wish I was cooler about that. And then I think I also said drugs. I just like don't do a lot of them and yeah, don't but react well. I mean, I would, I would question your definition of cool there, right? Because yeah. if you're like... I really wish I could do that, but I'm too afraid, then that's not cool. But if you're like, yeah, I'm not really, I feel no need to do that, 
to me, that's cool. Like, that's how I feel about bungee jumping. Right. Like, I, I, I will never bungee jump. Like, why would I? That just seems crazy. Well, then I'll just go back to my original answer, which is that, that you're I'm pretty already fucking cool. Totally cool. Yeah. Um, maybe, but- maybe a little less arrogant <laughs> would be nice. That would make you cooler. Um, okay, but maybe food is a bad example, but in you know, in regard to, let's say, jealousy or monogamy, like, don't you think also saying, like, well, I just can't do it could also be an excuse. Like, do you think there is, like you said, you have gotten over certain things or evolved in certain ways. Do you think that part of the process for people, if at first they feel uncomfortable with it, that's some like some self-examination and like evaluating their self-worth, et cetera, um, could allow them to sort of um, embody that innate human quality more so than well see i i think innate is a problem there right and and you know one of the things that has caused um some confusion uh, in my life is that a lot of people who haven't actually read sex at dawn think it's a book that says that if you're monogamous, you're some kind of a loser or you're, you know, I see, you know, I have a news alert set up, a Google news alert for sex at dawn. And so I see a lot of these Reddit conversations where people are talking about the book and someone will say, you know, you should read sex at dawn. And the reply will be, Oh, that you know, fuck that. That's that book that says it's cool to cheat. And, you know, it's like, there's a public perception of the book that it is, um, telling people how they should live. And we were very careful uh, not to write that kind of a book because we don't, you know, because Hilda and I had no advice for how people should live. All we were trying to do in the book was say, this is what the science says about what our, the nature of our species is and our evolutionary past. And, you know, here's how, here's the evidence from anthropology, from primatology, from the way our bodies are designed and, um, you know, the issues that people have in contemporary psychosexuality, um, do what you will with that information. Right. And so that's like saying, you know, someone saying to me, some French chef saying to me, like Chris, it makes no sense that, you know, you're disgusted by this when, you know, you'll eat the sheep's ribs and ass muscle, but you don't want to eat its brain. But look at the con- the nutritional content of the brain. Look at, you know, why should we throw this away? I mean, there are lots of very good arguments, but I'm still grossed out by it. And so I think you get to a point where it's like, <clears throat> there's no right or wrong. Now, if somebody, it's like you with the, the high risk sports, if somebody says, you know, I'm pathologically jealous you know, when I see my girlfriend look at another guy, I want to kill her. Like, okay, dude, you got issues. Like, you got you to gotta work on that, right? Um, but if somebody says, you know what? I'm totally cool with my partner. My partner's cool with me. Both of us are oriented much more toward monogamy. Sexual novelty is not important to either one of us. Uh, at this point in our lives, we're much more focused on raising our kids and keeping the business running and, you know, blah, 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 or, you know, overcoming illness or whatever it is. I don't think anyone should feel obligated um, to question those values or that comfort level. Just like I don't think you should necessarily go, you know, paraglide if you're not feeling 
that your life is missing something, you're missing out on some important experience. If you're happy, you're happy. That's fine. So I, I don't have any sort of like, you know, when people say, yeah, I'm not into that. That's fine with me. I don't, I don't have any value judgment about that at all. Unless it's either, you know, a pathological response um, or it's, um, you know, some kind of denial and they, they do feel um, that they're missing something, you know. Yeah. I mean, I was, I think I was more talking about someone that felt maybe closer to embodying that quality or wanting to do it, but feeling like they did need to like unpack or unravel, unravel some cultural imprinting. I mean, I think about that in terms of the way that I think about the world. And I wonder if like living in Europe at a young age and having a gay dad, sort of like being just more familiar with all these different options made me sort of more curious about how to unpack that for myself. Like, who was that? Who am I actually? Right. Versus who does someone else want me to be or the culture wants me to be? Yeah, I I often return to this concept uh, that I think came from uh, Joseph Campbell, this concept of detribalization. Um, Because, you know, my particular biography, like yours, has been very much about, you know, as a kid moving a lot. And so because I moved a lot, I saw how people thought differently. I didn't move internationally. It was all in the U.S., but it still gave me that understanding of like, oh, there are all these like different pockets of reality around and everyone seems to think that the reality they're in is reality, right? Everyone, you know, like, you know, one example that comes to mind is nobody thinks they have an accent, right? Everyone thinks the way they talk is normal and other people have an accent. Um, so yeah, I got that insight at an early age and, uh, you know, the rest of my life has been very much shaped by that, um, you know, in the same sense as yours has. Like, okay, w- you know, question these the premise. Question the sort of accepted wisdom of the way life is and the way people are and the way sex is or the way, you know, happiness comes and all those sorts of things. Um, you know, I think that's important, but I do think you know, again, that it's, it's tempting to tell other people that they should approach life the way we do. But I feel like that undermines the whole insight of detribalization, right? Yeah. Because then it's like, no, no, the way I do it is normal. This is the way you should live. This is the way you should think. This is the way you should look at your relationships or whatever. Um, So I'm always trying to apply that same doubt to my own certainty, you know, and not let myself slip into, um, you know, guru, guru vibe. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting cause I do feel like any amount of certainty or like there's something unnerving about that to me. I feel more comfortable sort of like standing on this shifting ground and like constantly redefining and reevaluating something. But I also recognize that for a lot of other people, that's severely uncomfortable. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, but it's, you know, and and maybe I'm just doing like a meta, meta, you know, third layer down uh, hypocrisy here, but uncertainty is real. 
Yeah. Right? Like we are on shifting ground. We are on our, you know, I, you know, I've said on my podcast, people think they're swimming in a lake, but they're really in a river. Mm-hmm. Right. And what I mean by that is that if you're swimming in a lake, you can go any direction you want. If you're swimming in a river, you're going downstream. You're not going upstream. I don't care how good a swimmer you are. You, you'll get exhausted, right? You, you can't do it. And, the, and so people think they're in this lake and they can just you know, tread water for a while and then decide what to do. But what they don't realize is that all the time they're treading water and they think they're in one place and they're waiting, they're actually going downstream. And their situation is changing. They're getting older. Opportunities are, are disappearing. Um, you know, n- new obstacles are coming. And if you, if you think you're in a lake and you don't realize you're in a river, then you don't have the sense to turn and face downstream and see the rocks coming at you or see that you're approaching a waterfall or see that there's a snag you're about to hit or something. So I think it's, um, you know, that uncertainty and the the sort of constantly changing nature of life is as close as I can get to certainty. You know what I mean? The certainty yeah. of uncertainty, the certainty of change, the certainty of doubt, the certainty that I'm never going to ever figure this out completely. That's the only thing I'm certain of. Yeah, which is I feel like where so many, well, so many, almost all of us are have just been like forced into at this time right now. Uncertainty. Yeah. 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 And that's the other thing that if you already incorporate that into your personality and your understanding of the world, then when the shit hits the fan, you're more, you're more ready for it. Cause you know, I don't, you know, some people are like, oh yeah, if I get that job, marry that woman, whatever, then I'm done. I'm, I'm, I win. It's, you know, I've got everything set and then you lose the job or the woman leaves you or she gets sick or you get sick or it doesn't matter what you do that you think, you know, these, these guys in Idaho with their canned goods and their bunkers and their shotguns and, you know, like, sorry, dude, it's not going to work. There is no certainty. There is no bunker big enough and deep enough and strong enough that's going to protect you from time or change, you know, it's just not going to happen. So you're much better off. And, and see, to me, this sort of gets down to um, <clears throat> a fundamental way that I think about everything, which is the farmer versus the hunter gatherer, right? Farmers and foragers. Foragers are like, hey, I'm cruising around. I'll figure it out. Uh, when I need to, because I understand this landscape so well that I can always find food, I can always find water, I know how to build a shelter. Whereas farmers are like, no, no, I'm going to build a house, it's going to be strong, I'm going to have my money, I'm going to have my gold, I'm going to have my slaves, I'm going to have all my shit, I'm going to be here and I'm going to be safe. And if anyone comes and tries to take it, I'm going to fight them. And I'm gonna... So they're two fundamentally different ways of looking at life. And you know, since I was a little kid, the forager approach has always made much more sense to me, which is why I haven't owned things. I haven't been ambitious to like, you know, become a tenured professor at some university and get lots of, you know, um, recognition or, or money or houses or, you know, like accumulate things never made sense to me. And I guess this is 
fundamentally why, right? Because I prefer to be, I prefer to have a van than a house, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this time and like what's, oddly, I've been uh, comparing it. We have this weird thing where the Clinton Lewinsky scandal was like very important in both of our lives in very different ways. But I was thinking about like, wouldn't it be interesting to do a case study kind of like on that event and how that event influenced so many different mm. people in all these different ways. Right. Um, so I kind of, I want you to tell that story about why it was influential for you, but I've just been oddly enough relating it to now thinking about what's going on in our world now. And like in 10, 20, 30 years being like, all of these things mm. were sort of influenced by this event, which is obviously maybe more profound than the presidential blowjob, but still. Yeah, th that's an interesting thing to think about. Like, how is this coronavirus situation going to ripple out into time? Uh, I actually have a list. Um, this is something I'm going to talk about in, on my podcast, things that I changes that I see as potentially coming out of this, mm. you know, for example, think of all the people who are remote learning right now. Why are they going to go back to university and pay tens of thousands of dollars to sit in a room with a hundred other kids listening to a teaching assistant when they could get the same knowledge for nothing at home? Now they know it, right? It's been demonstrated. Um, <clears throat> so the, the Monica Lewinsky thing, when was that? Like ninety five or something? Yeah, we looked into it recently. I think I I think it came to light in like ninety eight. Came to light. <laughs> came to You're dress. Worse than me. <laughs> so what happened with me was I was in grad school at the time and I was working toward um I was doing research on something that was interesting to me, but um, I was becoming less and less comfortable with it. It was about, um, doing a personality assessment of doctors who work in intensive care or oncology, um, because those are two areas where, uh, a lot, if not most of your patients die. And so you don't have that like, oh, you know, fix a broken bone and send her home. She'll be fine. It's more of um, dealing with death and grief. And, um, and I wanted to know what kind of doctor can, what kind of person uh, can handle that for a career versus um, what kind of person would burn out quickly from that. Um, and... So I was working in hospitals in Spain with oncologists and, um, yeah, it was, it was becoming uncomfortable because I don't have the right personality for that is basically what I was discovering. Um, anyway, uh, that blowjob happened and I was looking at that and I was thinking like, why this is weird. It just doesn't make sense to me. There's something about the story. You know how sometimes you'll read a news story and it's like, wait a minute, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. That doesn't make sense. Like, oh, the, 
the TV, the closed circuit cameras weren't working that night, really. And you put him in the cell, you know, with the regular prisoners, even though he's this, you know, billionaire guy who's like, you know, got a sex island with, you know, all these famous people. Like, come on, this story doesn't work, right? Um, and I was looking at that blowjob thing and I was thinking like, what is up with this? This is so weird. Like Clinton's wife isn't pissed off about it, at least not publicly. She's essentially defending him. Uh, and Louis, Monica wasn't like, oh, he raped me. Monica was just like, uh, I, she didn't even, she told a friend sort of, she thought she was her friend. And then, uh, was it named Linda Tripp, who just died a couple of weeks ago? And then she went and told the, the media, right? So it wasn't even like the woman involved didn't tell anyone, didn't tell the media. She wasn't pissed off. She didn't feel exploited. Bill's wife didn't seem to care one way or the other. I mean, Bill's the president. Give the dude a blowjob. I mean, what the hell? You know, JFK was banging Marilyn Monroe, I, you know? Uh, and, and so the, the story that I was looking at was like, wait a minute. My understanding is that men seek power in order to have sexual access. Like that's the whole point of seeking power and money is to impress the women, right? Like a bower bird makes its nest with shiny things so it can get laid, right? So here's this guy. He's the most powerful man in the world, arguably, and he's charismatic and women love him. And so he's like got this thing going on with his intern and she's 24 or something. She's not 15, right? So what's the, I, I don't understand. What's the crime here? What's the problem? Everyone's all upset. Everyone's yelling and screaming, but I can't find a victim and I can't find a way that, that this fits into this understanding of why men seek power. Right? Like, if you can't even get a blowjob, then why run for president? What's the fucking point? What's in it for me, you know, or for him? So, anyway, I, I was just thinking about this at the time, and I was living in, uh, or was I? I don't know. My story isn't making sense because I feel like I was in San Francisco. Maybe I was there for a conference um, in grad school. But anyway, I went into this bookstore and, and I saw this book uh, called The Moral Animal by Robert Wright. And it's, it was about the new science of evolutionary psychology. And I thought, oh, man, you know, this is interesting. And I looked in it and I bought the book, took it and read it. And it was like one of the most important books I'd ever read because it, first of all, it's beautifully written. Uh, Robert Wright's a really good writer. Um, and even though at this point I totally disagree with the central argument of the book, I still admire him and, and this book a lot. Um, so basically what it argues is that men and women are locked in this eternal battle uh, between the sexes because we have differing reproductive agendas. Women want a man who's going to support her and the children and men want to fuck as many women as possible because sperm are really cheap but egg cells are very metabolically expensive and in the primordial um sort of ancestral environment 
uh, you know, when a woman's pregnant, she's going to be vulnerable to predators and she's not going to be able to go out and gather food as much. So she needs a man who's going to take care of her, protect her, bring her meat. And then when they have the children, that that man is going to go out and, you know, bring meat back and uh, for the family. And so made sense to me. And uh, I thought this is fantastic. So I started talking with uh, my friends about this, as I tend to do when I get excited about a new idea. And a lot of my friends at that time were very smart women. Um, some of them were strippers, very sort of sexually liberated. Some of them were lesbians. And, uh, and you know, all of them basically said, I don't know, Chris, that just sounds like a Victorian male perspective on sexuality. Uh you know, we don't have sex so we can get things from men. We have sex because we like sex. It feels good. And, you know, actually, I think it feels better for us than it does for you guys, you know. And so I I went back and looked at the source material in the book, you know, some of the papers and um, uh, anthropological reports and first contact stuff that uh, Wright was using and I started to find things that weren't mentioned in the book or that didn't form a prominent part of his argument, like bonobos. I had never heard of bonobos at that point. I don't think most people hadn't heard of bonobos in the mid-90s. And I was amazed to learn that there was this species of primate that was equally relevant to human development because they're, you know, um, evolutionarily share exactly the same amount of DNA with us as chimps do. And our, you know, our lines diverged at exactly the same moment um, from bonobos and chimps. And yet I, you know, I've been hearing about chimps my whole life, all this Jane Goodall stuff, all these, you know, chimp warfare and, you know, chimps raping and killing and, you know, the the brutal origins of humanity are, are right there for us to see in the chimps. But nobody's mentioned bonobos, and it turns out bonobos don't have war. Bonobos don't rape. They don't kill each other. Um, there's never been a single uh, witnessed case of a bonobo killing another bonobo. Not in zoos, not in the wild, nowhere. And they've been studied since the 1970s, at least. And uh, that seemed not only really important... Uh, when looking at these issues, uh, and also I should say bonobos are highly sexual and um, are, you know, their way of sort of greeting each other is rubbing their genitals together. There's all sorts of interesting sexual connections going on with bonobos. Um, so this seemed very important to me and and very relevant to any discussion of the origin of any human behavior. But it also struck me that it wasn't an accident that bonobos weren't included in these discussions. So it looked to me like um, a lot of what was passing as science was actually propaganda. And I got angry about that. And, you know, here are all these scientists, you know, talking about the, this, how sacred it is to, you know, uh, report the truth, no matter what the truth is. And uh, and I started to see behind the curtain a little bit, and I started to see how much of science, particularly science involving um, 
sexuality and other sort of innate human characteristics is deeply politicized. And yet there's very little discussion uh, of how deeply political it is. And so much of what's reported is twisted and distorted in order to fit a worldview. Um, and so I got, um, you know, I, I felt like I, I started, I was just pulling on a loose thread on a tapestry and the whole thing just started to fall apart in front of me. And so that's when I decided to shift from the oncologist to um, looking at human sexuality and human sexual evolution. And, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, too, like the irony of this book that you read that's talking about, like, the reason we have this war on the sexes and yet is somehow, or of the sexes rather, yet is somehow perpetuating that war through this sort of socially constructed misinformation. And I was also going to talk to you about like, it's interesting the route you took, I think, as you've spoken about, not just in the book, but just in your life in general, this sort of dedication to like being vulnerable enough as a man to like ask what the woman thinks or feels. Um, whereas I feel like a lot of men would find that to be like an emasculating, uh, quality, right? Like I should just know. Um, but I feel like you took this approach of being like actually genuinely curious and being vulnerable in a way that I feel like that's more of the route to sort of solve this. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't know exactly how to trace that back, but I know it goes to the you know earliest days of my own sexuality. Um, I don't know if I've told this story before, but you know my first girlfriend, the first girl I had sex with, um, she could have orgasms when I went down on her, but she didn't have orgasms when we had intercourse and you know, looking back on that now in the framework that you just laid out, I could see how I would be threatened by that or like, oh, what's there something wrong with my dick or I'm not doing it right or whatever. But to me, it, it was just like, wow, this is interesting. Hmm. Like, how does that work? Like this kind of stimulation feel, you know, takes her to this place and this kind of stimulation doesn't. But and for me, it wasn't threatening. It was just really interesting. So I ended up buying this, like, a lockbox at a stationery store, like one of those fireproof boxes to keep your, you know, documents <laughs> in or something. <laughs> but it had a lock, a key and a lock. And I, like, started accruing all these sex toys because I wanted to see like, okay, well, what about a vibrator? And what about this? And what about ribbed condoms? And, you know, like, so it was just like this research project, like, you know, so how does that feel? And, you know, I developed this system where it's like a number from one to five. And like, when I do this, what's that? And she'd be like three. And I'm like, okay, what's this? And like two. Okay. That's four. Oh, four. We're getting somewhere. So it was all just like, you know, uh, and, and I, I learned quickly with other women that like guys don't ask. And so many women were like, God, no one's ever asked me before. They just do it. And then they get angry 
or, you know, I have to fake an orgasm to just so he won't, you know, hate himself or be mad at me. Or it's like, and I realized like, geez, like nobody's asking questions here, you know? And so I guess, I don't know, like, I guess there was just this natural curiosity of how women work, but also uh, I had enough positive experiences with women early on who were like, thank God you're asking, like nobody ever asked me. And I, and I realized like that was really attractive. So maybe that was something that I, um, you know, I learned early not to, not to shy away from that, that that's actually a really good thing. And that's one of the things I talk about on my podcast to encourage guys to be more open and, you know, don't get threatened. Don't, don't worry about it. It's not, you know, I don't know. It's, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier, like cultural stuff, you know, like people are under so much cultural pressure to pretend they already know everything. And that blocks them from asking the kinds of questions that'll help them actually get to know things. Yeah. And I feel like men aren't asking and women are afraid to say something if they're not asked as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like I remember growing up, my mom always used to say to me, like, if you don't have a fulfilling sex life, like, that's on you. Like, you need to speak up and say what you like. But I think I sort of picked up on that sort of male, like, I didn't want to offend someone by saying, like, hey, that doesn't feel good. So it's like you're stuck in this loop of just a complete lack of communication, which isn't to see that say that women shouldn't speak up, but even just like having the man ask the questions, I feel like opens up this huge door to yeah. like growth and um, learning for both sides. Yeah. I, you know, I've heard you talking about um, courage. I think it was on one of your podcasts maybe, but you were you made the point that courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is the presence of fear, but going fear past walking. it. Yeah. Right. Go, <laughs> yeah. You know, just, okay, I'm afraid, but I'm going to yeah. do this anyway, right? right? That's what courage actually looks like. And I think if we apply that to this situation, I think a lot of men are afraid to ask questions because they think it makes them look... Um, inexpert or, you know, not cool or not strong or, you know, and, you know, the irony of, of life is that often, you know, the greatest strength is expressed by, um, showing vulnerability and curiosity and, you know, women are all different. That's the thing guys need to understand. Like every woman is different. So just, you know, cause your ex-girlfriend was into, you know, whatever doesn't mean you can just do that to other women and they're all going to love it. You know, it's not how it works each. And that's the beauty of it. Each woman is different and each situation is different. And like, that's, that's what you need to embrace and, and go into it with curiosity and, and, Openness. I don't know how this became like a, yeah. you know, <laughs> therapy a sex therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder, like, did you, you know, the, in terms of your like intellectual interest in sex, I mean, I guess, you know, I feel some empathy toward people who grew up in like a very shame based or like religious environment. Um, Cause I don't think you necessarily had like this super, 
progressive, sexually open family, but I feel like you did have a lack of any sort of shame that enabled you to approach these things, right? Which I feel like, I mean, I actually probably did have a sexually progressive family, but uh, same, like there was just not a lot of shame. So my interest in these areas didn't feel like I was, you know, I didn't have to keep quiet. I could ask questions. I could explore these things. I could take classes about homosexuality in college and... Um, but I guess that was probably for you as well, right? There wasn't. Yeah. I think both my parents, um, experienced a Mm -hmm. lot of that shame because they were both raised as Catholics Mm -hmm. and went to Catholic schools through university. Um, but I also think that both of them agreed very explicitly that they weren't going to pass that on to their kids. Mm. And so I think that was really important to them. And they were, I would say, largely successful at that. Yeah. So, yeah, there wasn't shame around um, sex or bodies or whatever. I mean, they didn't walk around naked or anything. They weren't hippies. But they let you walk around in a They let me cloth. walk around in a white cloth. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, let's switch gears and talk about the global pandemic. Um, so, so interestingly, it's like, you know, there was this what question I wanted to ask you about. Um, I don't really know how to frame it, but it's interesting because you talk how, about how long it took you to write Civilized to Death. Mm. And... I remember feeling like when I was creating my podcast, uh, that it took me a lot longer. I mean, not 10 years like your book, but it took me like a year to even get anywhere. And I remember during that whole time thinking like, fuck, I might be missing out on something. Like I'm going to be too late. Someone else is going to take this idea, but yet I didn't really want to push it. And I just sort of wanted to approach it in like an intuitive, as intuitive a way as possible. Um, and it's fascinating to me because I feel like you experienced that a little bit, with your book being like, shit, I'm really fucking this up. I can't get this done. And yet here we are where it was released like just before basically the whole book came true. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and and I felt that way about Sex at Dawn too. Like right. it was definitely delayed. And then looking back on it, it feels like it came out at exactly the right moment when the audience was ready for that particular message in a way that they hadn't been a year or two previously. Um, Yeah, Civilized to Death uh, took a long time, partly uh, because of things that were going on in my personal life um, that took priority, you know, um, illness of people close to me. and, um, And also, to be honest, Sex at Dawn changed my life so much and and brought so many interesting opportunities to me that uh, I hadn't ever had before and, and didn't think I ever would have that, you know, it, it was very uh, against my nature to say no to, uh, you know, an opportunity to go to Australia on a speaking tour or, you know, um, spend two weeks in the Sea of Cortez on my friend's boat that he invited me to, or, you know, like just 
amazing opportunities. Like, oh no, I'm going to stay home and write. Fuck that. No, I'm living, man. I'm I'm going to, you know, enjoy these things. And so, yeah, the book kept getting pushed back because of stuff like that. But another aspect of it was just that it was really hard to immerse myself in material that was so painful. And um, when I say painful, what I mean is the book is basically, it didn't start out this way. The way the book started out was like, you know, sort of like, what can we learn from our ancestors about, you know, the best ways to live in the modern world? So like sort of applying hunter-gatherer lessons to modern life. Uh, in terms of health and how we raise our kids and, you know, organize things at work or whatever. And that would have been a relatively easy book to write. But as I was getting into the book, I my thinking sort of migrated away from that kind of, you know, 10 steps to happiness from a hunter-gatherer perspective to something much deeper, which was, which is what the book ended up being, which was sort of looking at civilization and saying, hey, wait a minute, was this worth it? Like this whole thing, this whole civilizational enterprise that our species has been involved with for the last 10,000 years, what are the true costs and benefits? As I said earlier, so much of science is propaganda and politicized and nothing more so than civilization itself, right? Like to say, I don't know, I'm not sure civilization is such a great idea is like the deepest heresy you can possibly say, right? And yet it seems to me that at this point, knowing what we do about hunter-gatherers, knowing what we do about, uh, you know, the effects of stress and um, different kinds of pollutants that are, result from civilization and, and a clear-eyed look at colonialism and slavery and, you know, all these different elements of civilization, capitalism, you know, our, our relationship with the natural world, on and on. You can, I think, step back and objectively measure these things. And when you look at it clearly, to me, I don't see any great benefit of civilization. And so that's the book I ended up writing and which, you know, excited me intellectually to make that big of an argument. Um, But it's really depressing to say, wait, all these people died for nothing, all this suffering, all this destruction, all this, these chemicals dumped into rivers for nothing. Um, and so that was hard to sit down every day and, and write that. Sex at Dawn was so much easier. It's so much easier to go, okay, I'm going to go write about masturbation now, <laughs> you know, or I'm going to write about, you know, why women have pendulous breasts. I can't wait to do that chapter. Yeah, uh, That was fun, but you know, oh yeah, now I'm going to sit down and, you know, write about, you know, Columbus chopping off the arms of Indians who didn't bring enough gold um, when there was no gold to be had on Hispaniola. That was harder to do. So it took a while. 
Yeah. And I feel like you've talked about that. It was also felt very personal. Um, going back to your loincloth that you felt like you were like a native American and in, in multiple past lives or something. And so that even if this book didn't do well, that like you felt like it was your sort of duty or like repayment in some way to share these things and talk about them, even if nobody really received it that well. Yeah, it's true. I, I certainly didn't expect it to sell as well as sex of dawn, you know, no one, no writer could ever expect to have a book become like a cult hit like that did. Um, but yeah, I did feel like a moral responsibility to, to say some of these things, even though I knew that a lot of what I was saying was going to be, you know, you don't get rich telling people bad news. You, you know, you don't, nobody wants to hear bad news. And there's no worse news than, hey, guys, this is, we've been going in the wrong direction for 10,000 years. We need to stop and turn around and go back. Nobody wants to hear that. Everybody wants to hear, no, no, just keep going. We're almost there. You know, we're almost there. We've almost cured cancer. We've almost got, um, you know, renewable energy figured out. Um, you know, we're we're almost there. We've got it worked out. Now we've got, you know fake meat. We don't need to kill animals anymore. And, uh, but you know, I'm 58. I've been hearing that my whole life that we're almost there. And, you know, people have been hearing that for 10,000 years. Yeah. We talked about this the other day and the more I think about it, the more I feel like it makes sense to me. Something about like how prevalent these sort of conspiracy theories are right now about this virus and to me, it feels like that pain and that anger and that grief that was so hard for you to sort of like process through and write this book, that there's part, there's a lot of that that more of us are feeling now, but mm. instead of wanting to, that we're sort of like projecting it outward at these sort of mysterious corporate, I don't know what, um, but it seems to me that it's... It, it's some sort of like weird psychological skipped step that's happening. Like instead of really coming to terms with maybe, you know, just what's going on, but also what we're participating in and, you know, what's the solution to these problems? If not, like we have a population problem and then what does that mean? Like these topics are extremely heavy and hard to absorb. Um, I'm just curious if you feel, like maybe that's partially what happening what's happening in like finding these weird mysterious enemies outside of ourselves instead of coming to terms with what's actually happening. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think there's so much emotional charge in that. Uh yeah, this movie just uh, Michael Moore produced a movie called uh Planet of Humans, I think it's called which I watched yesterday. And then I got into this long uh, argument with a friend of mine who's an environmental activist um, because he was basically saying, this movie is shit, it's totally dishonest, and he's very, very emotional about it. And I watched the movie, and the central argument of the movie, as far as I could tell, was that 
solar and wind energy aren't going to save us because you still, that's still part of the industrial um, approach that you need factories to build these wind turbines. You need factories to build solar panels. You need mines to mine the silicon, the the silicon and the coal and all the stuff that goes into this stuff. It'll last a few years, then it's going to be trashed and you got more. So there's like, the the only way to really solve the issue is to deal with human population, that there are just too many people. And, you know, I looked at that and I've that's I've thought that for years. Like we're we're avoiding the central uh, essential issue in our interaction with the planet, which is how many people are there? I mean, it seems to me that it's a very simple formula. It's human impact on the planet is calculated by what is each human's impact and how many humans are there, right? If there were 50 million of us, we could do whatever the hell we wanted. Just think about like, you know, if you've got, if you're camping in the woods, um, you couldn't shit pretty much wherever you want and it's not an issue. But if you've got, you know, Burning Man, with, you know, whatever, 800,000, 80,000 people or whatever it was. Like, no, you can't just, people can't just shit wherever they want because then there's shit everywhere, right? So it's all about scale. So if you have a a sustainable population, then you're not going to overfish the oceans because you don't have that many people to feed. It's just not an issue. So um, you're not going to, you know, do mountaintop mining. You're not going to destroy the planet because those 50 million people can get what they need without doing that kind of destruction. But if you've got 20 billion people, I don't care how many wind turbines or solar panels you have, your the planet is fucked. And uh you know the 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 fisheries are fucked and and so maybe it'll address the carbon emissions, but that's only one of many different issues that uh, we're facing. So anyway, my point was that I watched the movie and it's like, oh, you know, we have to deal with human population. These other things aren't going to save us. And I said that on Twitter and my friend was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? How dare you? This is going to set us back 10 years and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, dude, and and like I even got called a Nazi at one right. point. And it's like, I'm a Nazi because I think that human population is an issue. Well, here. I think that's like a such a key point of this, right? That I mean, I think he said something like, "You talking about that global population is an issue during a worldwide pandemic right. makes you a Nazi," which right. to me was like, no, but exactly, like right. that's exactly what we should be thinking about. And yeah, it's painful. That doesn't make us a Nazi. That makes us like you know, coming to terms with the horrific realities of our existence. Right. And, and, you know, why are pandemics possible, right? Pandemics didn't happen among hunter gatherers. This is one of the central insights of civilized to death that I try to get people to see is that most of the problems that civilization claims to have solved are problems that civilization has in fact created uh, and the solutions are partial at best, right? I mean, there's a smallpox vaccine now, um, but there are new pandemics all the time, and some of them are quite lethal, like the one we're dealing with right now. And by the way, there's nothing stopping another virus from jumping over at any moment. We could be dealing with two or three or four. 
Why is that happening? Because population growth, because human populations are moving into more and more remote areas uh, where people are having contact with animals that uh, have this virus and the virus jumps over from the animal either because somebody ate one or uh, there was a blood-to-blood transmission during butchering the animal or just living in close proximity to the animal um, can uh, cause the virus to transmit. And, um, you know, that's a result of, of overpopulation and civilization. So, yeah, it's there's a lot of emotional charge to these things. And I think you're right that a lot of it is that people are wedded to the notion of progress and the idea that technology will save us. But I don't see any evidence for that. You know, as Jung said, every advance is bought with the price of, uh, you know, a uh, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but I forget. I quoted it in Civilized to Death, but the idea was every step forward is taken at the cost of a step back. So everything, every new technology, you know, we think about, you know, some new drug. Maybe they'll they'll come up with a vaccine for, for coronavirus in a year or two. Okay, well, how many people are going to die from that vaccine? What, you know, how many rivers are going to be destroyed by the factories producing that vaccine? You know, where do the, the, the reagents come for testing? Where do these chemicals come from? What's the process of creating this? So when you add up all those costs versus what if we just didn't have as many kids and we intentionally reduced population so we didn't need to go into those areas where the, the virus is and we didn't need to eat those animals because there was other stuff that we could eat. Um, yeah, I think it starts to look a little different. So I know, I feel like before all of this happened, when we had, we'd, we'd have a lot of conversations where like I took what I felt like as like it was a very millennial, uh, op- optimistic-ish approach mm. um, of feeling like, well, I've got all of these years left on this planet, so like I, I can't just sit here and sort of either accept this or like, I know I'm not going to make a difference, but I might as well try or at least live my own personal life in a way that doesn't make me feel like I'm perpetuating at least all of these problems. Um, I'm curious. And I guess also tying this into what you talked about in your book in regard to progress being cyclical, um, sort of like returning to the same place, but Mm -hmm. seeing it for the first time. time. Mm -hmm which is, I feel like, how I see things. So even if, like, I still, I I feel like progress can be defined in any number of ways. To me, I do see progress as necessitating some sort of, like, destruction and return. Um, but all of that said, I'm curious, having this stuff happen in real life now, do you feel more sort of... Uh, like pessimistic or hopeful or optimistic or sort of the same. Cause I feel like you, I mean, I sort of feel a little bit guilty because there's part of me that's like a little glad this is happening. Um, so I'm just curious if that's changed your perspective at all in regard to like where we're going or could go, or are we still super fucked? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're still super fucked, but, uh, I do 
think, I, I mean, I share a little bit of your happiness is the wrong word, but there's, you know, when you are in a fragile system, anything that points out that fragility is, I think, good because a big part of the fragility is that so many people refuse to acknowledge that it's fragile, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like um, anything that's true, if you're living in a world of falsehoods, any truth that breaks through and gets into people's heads is is good. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we're fucked because because of the refusal of people to um it's not even people see this is this is a a point i keep hitting a, like a wall i i run into it's bigger than people it's you know you've you know and i've talked about this before i i see humanity as a super organism so I see corporations as living things that incorporate literally human beings the way that we incorporate um, bacteria in our guts and on our skin and, you know, the whole microbiome. Um, <clears throat> each one of us is a community of organisms. And I think that we, in turn, are part of a community that that um, manifests in these other living things like corporations and governments and, and humanity as a whole. And so the, to me, the great tragedy of civilization is that no one decides to do these things. These things just happen the way salmon school or birds flock or, you know, an entire herd of zebras will all turn and run in one direction at once and nobody knows why. There's no lead zebra saying, okay, guys, you know, take a right here. It just happens. And so I think these things happen. And so I don't blame individual zebras for running toward the cliff, right? But as a zebra in the herd running toward the cliff, uh, it makes me sad to see what's happening. And I don't know how to change it. Um, but I don't blame individuals. I don't even blame the CEO of Exxon or BP or, you know, as I've said before, you know, if the CEO of Exxon went and took ayahuasca and, you know, had an epiphany and went into work and said, guys, we can't do this anymore. This deep water drilling is crazy. We don't know how to, you know, protect against destroying the ocean. He'd be fired. He'd be gone. Right. So, the idea that people run corporations is ridiculous. Corporations run people. And if you don't run in the direction that corporation wants you to run, then you're out. And the corporation's going to keep going. It'll find someone else. So uh, there is a sense of helplessness because I feel like we are herd animals running in the wrong direction, but there's I don't know how to change that. Now, on the other hand, it's interesting to see how quickly things can happen, right? Like three months ago, who would, who could have predicted that the price of oil would be below zero, right? That where it is right now, uh, that they would actually pay you to take oil and put it in a tank. If you have an empty tank somewhere, uh, who, who could have predicted that 
um, you know, 90% of air flights would be canceled or that, uh, you know, all these other things that have happened. So maybe this is an opportunity for things, you know, we started this conversation talking about things that, um, changes that could be coming out of this that like we can't quite see yet. They're not quite born. Um, but, uh, one of them could be universal basic income. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say the other crazy part of like, didn't you say Andrew Yang was like consulting with the Trump administration? Yeah, he was briefly, but I, I I think that's over now. I don't know. I haven't seen any more (laughs) reports about that, but yeah. I mean, you know, people ask me, okay, what should we do? You know, I, as I said, I don't like telling people what to do. I don't even know what to do myself. But one big tool, I think, would be global universal basic income. Like everybody's covered. And that's totally doable, right? You just look at the numbers. It's doable. We, the amount of money we spend on defense is enough to feed and clothe and house everyone on the planet, you know, indefinitely. So if that were conditional upon or, or if it nudged people in the direction of not having kids, you know, in a few generations, we could bring global population down to a much more sustainable level without getting Nazi on anyone. You know, I'm not talking about death camps. I'm not talking about forced sterilization. I'm talking about, you know, offering people a deal. Like if you have no kids, you get a, you get 1500 bucks a month. If you have one kid, you get 1200 bucks a month. If you have two kids, you get a thousand bucks a month. You can go work and make up the difference. If you really want to have kids go, you know, work, whatever, make more money or, or live on less or whatever. So I'm not talking about taking away anyone's rights. I'm just saying, you know, tax laws are set up to encourage behaviors and discourage other behaviors. Well, why can't we encourage behaviors that accrue to the benefit of all of us and the planet? There's nothing fascist about that. Yeah, and I think the issue that I always struggled with when we first started talking about these things, but then I feel like we were aligned, that like helplessness doesn't necessarily equal inaction, right? Like in my life, I can still do a lot of things, even if I don't think they're going to succeed or save the world. I mean, that's the irony of this whole podcast is like, I don't actually think I'm going to figure out how to save the world or that I, one person could do so, or even a group of us. Um, But that doesn't mean that I don't, you know, make choices or live in certain ways that I feel like, let's say everyone did would be helpful overall. Um, which interestingly relates to like what I think I was trying to also talk about in regard to taking a long time to write your book, but then it sort of worked out. Like we've had this conversation about there's this uh, sort of like nuanced area where you both have to work toward and make action towards something succeeding, but also like not really care if it does. Mm. (laughs) And you know, like the fact that you didn't try to be famous or be a best-selling author, um, but yet it sort of happened anyway. And I see that in my own life as well. It's like when I don't really try is when it happens, which isn't to say I'm not taking action, right? Because then we can just get really lazy and be like, I'm just waiting for my life to manifest before me. Um, But I feel like that's a really important lesson, especially for people my age personally, but also collectively, this whole thing of like 
do the work anyway, even if you it doesn't work <laughs> in the end. Yeah, you, I think the key is not to be motivated by the result that you're expecting. The key is to be motivated by what you're doing. So if you can look at your life and say, you know what, <clears throat> uh, if I won a million dollars in a lottery tomorrow, I'd keep doing what I'm doing right now, then you're living your best life. That's great. Um, because you're not doing it to make money. You're not doing it to get famous. You're doing it because this is meaningful for you and this is what you want to be doing. You know, like I think about being your age or younger, because now there are kids getting out of college now who are getting totally fucked, right? There are no jobs, even fewer jobs than when you got out of college. Um, and, you know, I really sympathize with them and, and think about how hard it must be to, you know, be sort of showing up at a party that is already at the stage where the ashtrays are all full and there's spilled drinks everywhere and there's somebody puking in the kitchen and like, what? I just got here and this is what's happening? Like, come on now. <clears throat> I, yeah, I sympathize with that. I do think that in any crisis, there are great opportunities. And I think that people are you know, because the American dream is no, is sort of exposed as being bullshit at this point, that people are much more open to looking at alternatives, um, to, you know, the sort of classic work hard, make a lot of money, get, get a house in the suburbs and, you know, drink martinis every night. Like people are, that's obviously not working. So, and it's not even available. So now people are like, Oh, okay. So what about living in a van? What about moving to some tiny little town where land is really cheap with a few of my friends and raising chickens and, you know, helping my friends raise their kids. Cause I don't want to have kids, but I like kids and, you know, take some pressure off them. And like, there are ways that, that people are looking at, um, organizing their lives that I think 10, 20, 30 years ago, nobody was really thinking about because come on, like, why not just go for the gold, you know? Um, but what I was going to say is like the existential despair that people feel when they're like, you know, the fucking world is ending and I'm just getting started. I, I think that's universal, you know, Everyone feels that um, when you reach a certain age where you're like, I'm, I'm finally figuring out how this works and my life is winding down. So there's like a, you know, I think your generation and younger generations are looking at it on a global scale, but it's the same issue that everybody faces on a personal scale. So there's some sort of universality in the questions that you're asking, like, okay, you know, I'm not going to change the outcome, but how do I want to live in the meantime? Right. I mean, I think that's a question everybody asks, like, you know, when you're 20, you don't realize you're mortal when you're 50, you do. And so you're 50 and then you're looking and you're saying, okay, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to like become a health nut and, uh, you know, stave off my mortality as long as I possibly can? 
Or am I going to just fucking have a good time and, you know, have no regrets when it comes, right? I mean, there are lots of gray areas between those two extremes, but I think that's the kind of question that people need to to confront at some point. You know, I guess that's the classic midlife crisis. Like, oh my God, what have I been doing? I'm going to die in 30 years. What am I going to do for the next 30 years, you know? Right. And it, and would it be so harmful if that crisis was sort of like moved up in one's life to where they sort of came to terms with the hypocrisy of what was going on? I think that's a great benefit. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah, because like, yeah. you're, you have to, you don't waste half your life before you ask that question. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. I think about what the imprint is on like even younger kids going through this right now, staying at home and like even probably subconsciously recognizing the importance of like their friends or socialization or being outside all day and spending time with their parents when their parents aren't at work and they're at school. And it reminds me of a quote of yours um, that I like totally posted on my wall, like a total fangirl a few years ago, totally different context. But you said, if by a certain age, you're not heartbroken, you're not paying attention. Mm. Um, And I think what's going on right now is that, you know, we're sort of being forced to see the world in a more complex way and it's not all fucking roses and rainbows and fairies and that, that, you know, sort of seeing the world through pretty colors all the time is actually not at all beneficial and to sort of live within that nuanced space of like pain and happiness and like grief and love is beneficial I think on all levels and just real. That's exactly. That's what I said before. If you're living in a world of bullshit, any light of truth that shines through is beneficial. Right. And like so many of those bright colors you're talking about are meant to distract us from reality, you know, meant to distract us from the fact that that job, You know, we both know people who've lost their jobs in the last few weeks. And without exception, as far as I know, all of them were like, you know what? I hated that fucking job. I'll figure something else out. I'll spend less money or I'll, you know, put more time into this other thing that I actually like doing or I'll move in with my friend and share expenses. And so there is a way in which, you know, if your life is built around bullshit, anything that knocks things down is good. As long as you build something better with the pieces. That was a mic drop moment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I think that's a good point to end it on. But before we go, um, tell everyone where they can like find you and learn more about you. And then also I ask everyone if they could recommend one book. Oh, jeez. Uh, everyone can find me via my website, which is that Chris Ryan.com. So it's a new website too. It's all redesigned and fancy. Uh, my podcast, which is on the website is called tangentially speaking. Uh, we'll have an episode with young Anya Katz at some point soon or Kate's. No, it's officially Katz. <laughs> is, is it officially Katz now? All right, sorry. <laughs> Uh, one book that I could recommend. You can do more than one. Uh, yeah, there's so many. Um, yeah, that's like asking, you know, a mother of 500 to children to name child. her favorite. I yeah, I, I love books so much. 
Well, there's a book, if, if people are interested in the sorts of things we've been talking about um, and have either already read Civilized to Death or just don't want to, there's uh, a book called A Brief History of Progress <clears throat> by Ronald Wright, not Robert Wright, who I was speaking of earlier, but Ronald Wright, who's a Canadian historian. And it is brief. I think it's 100 pages, 120 pages or something. And basically it looks at um, previous civilizations in the history of the world and how they sort of the life cycle of a civilization and how they all sort of go through the same phases. And um, <clears throat> it's very interesting and, and illuminating because it can help you see where we are right now uh, much more clearly. I'm not going to say it's a happy book. But it's uh, very interesting and very illuminating. Uh, another book I'd recommend is Finite and Infinite Games by James Carse, which is an even shorter book. That's probably 50 pages or something. And uh, he's a, he was a philosopher at NYU, I think. And he um, just sort of has this way of looking at human interaction as and breaks it down into two kinds of games, one of which a finite game is meant to be won, and an infinite game is meant to be continued as long as possible. And he just sort of explains that way of looking at things and then gives examples, and it, it's another one of those books that, you know, I read it in 1988 probably, and I've probably given 30 copies away um, because it's it's the kind of book where you'll look at your life differently. You'll There will be before you read that book and after you read that book. And that's amazing, you know, for 50 pages to be able to change the way you look at the world. And one more, uh, a fiction book. Yeah. Uh, I'd say The Unbearable Lightness of Being is another one of those books where my life changed before and after reading it. And uh, I think it's extremely fun to read because it's just the way it's written is so light. And yet the themes that Kundera is explaining are so important and deep and heavy. So it's written light, but it's heavy you know it's the so the unbearable lightness of being it also i think is very good at sort of teasing out the way men and women look at things differently often and and see relationships differently and fail to comprehend each other in ways um yeah i think it's a fantastic book i've probably read it five times it's i'm due to read it again soon i guess yeah you're gonna have to do it on your what makes this book great yeah, I, I don't want to do a whole book though. I've decided <laughs> that's too that's way too much. Um, so I'll maybe I'll do an excerpt from it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. My pleasure. Hello again. Thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, if you would like to support the podcast, please head over to Patreon.com/slash Anya Cots. For a few bucks a month, you can help me quite a bit in keeping this show alive and kicking and get access to cool perks like a WhatsApp group chat or t-shirts 
or playlists, etc., etc. Um, or again, you can go to the iTunes store, hit subscribe, leave some stars and a review. That is free and only takes a moment and helps a lot. I am going to play you out today with a song called Pacing the Cage by Bruce Cockburn. Um, I heard the song for the first time, I think, through Chris, actually. So uh, that's one link. Always love playing a thematic song at the end of an episode. Um, but also uh, the lyrics speak to so many different things. I mean, I feel like every time I read the lyrics or hear the song, I'm pulled in a different direction in regard to um, the meaning of it, but certainly it applies to a lot of what Chris and I talked about, um, and I think what I talked about in the intro as well, about finding meaning in our life and um, how much capacity we have to create a life for ourselves and how often we might get stuck in patterns and systems. I remember I was with a close friend of mine, um, I don't know when this was, sometime in the past couple years, and um, we were hanging out and she went into her room at some point and she has this really adorable habit of sort of like writing her plans all over pieces of paper and like posting them all over the wall and where she wants to go and her visions and just sort of to remind her. And uh, I was in the living room and she went into her room and was there for a while and came out and sort of looked very wide-eyed at me um, and said, it's fascinating how easy it is to fall asleep. And I knew exactly what she meant. It's like, you know, we know what we want. It's right there in front of us. We even have it written out and we're staring at it. And yet we fall asleep and we stay stuck and we stay in the same patterns and just going through the motions and living this inauthentic robotic life. Um, I really, truly hope that this experience helps us crawl out of that cage even a little bit. Um, but every time I hear this song, I think about that moment with her. And although it was probably an important moment for her, I felt like it was one for me too. And, and something that I really wanted to hold myself accountable to as well. Um, and you know, that often means that when we're, you know, living in a quote unquote aligned way, we don't necessarily know where we're going. Like normally we don't, if we know where we're going, it's too easy. Um, and the path is really painful and involves jumping off of lots of cliffs. And, uh, there's a lyric in the song. Um, sometimes the best map will not guide you. You can't see what's around the bend. Sometimes the road leads, leads through dark places. Sometimes the darkness is your friend. We are so there right now. Um, so let's not find ourselves pacing the cage. Let's fucking open the door and walk out. Love you all very much. Talk to you next week. Sunset is an angel weeping Holding out a bloody sword No matter how I squint I cannot 
Make out what it's pointing toward Sometimes you feel like you've lived too long Days drip slowly on the page You catch yourself Pacing the cage I've proven who I am so many times The magnetic strips worn thin And each time I was someone else And everyone was taken in Powers chatter in high places Stir up eddies in the dust of rage me to pacing the cage I never knew what you all wanted So I gave you everything All that I could pillage All the spells that I could It's as if the thing were written In the constitution of the age Sooner or later You'll wind up pacing the cage Facing the cage 